Well, if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up. Um, we're going to be actually being in a number of different places. If you wanted to go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, that'd be a good place to start. We have been working together through uh, this wonderful section of scriptures that teaches us, the church, how to be aware of the biblical requirements of leadership. God is raising up men to shepherd his church well and to help uh, the individuals that God has saved to grow into mature men and women who can apply themselves to that mission. And so we're very, very grateful to be able to see what God has to tell us and show us in his word. And so if you've got your scripture, you can prepare for that right now. Next week, we're going to have something very different in store for you. And so I really want to encourage you to make every effort to be here with us uh, a week from today. Our friends from the Kenyan Evangelical Mission are going to be joining us. You might remember Lois Osborne. Um, we've been sponsoring her, and before her husband Hoyt passed away, sponsoring Hoyt as well uh, for over 10 years now as a church. They are missionaries that we believe in what they're doing. They are planting churches. They are building seminaries in Africa so that they can raise up people to do the work of God's ministry in that place. Uh, Lois is on furlough right now. She's stateside. Um, she's going from church to church uh, to gather support and uh, to, to get some rest. Uh, the work over in Kenya is, is very difficult, um, but she is, is happy to do it. We're going to be blessed to have them here next week on the 10th. And she's also traveling with a couple of the young men from Kenya whom they have raised up and have trained to serve God. These men are now pastors who are shepherding churches. And uh, we're going to be blessed, I believe, to have one of them preach for us next week. His name is Shadrach. And so uh, it should be a time of rejoicing as we celebrate what the Lord's doing and we learn how we can better and more accurately pray for that mission that is, is very important to us. Uh, one of the focuses of that mission in Kenya is the equipping of faithful biblical leaders. Um, and that is what we've been learning about from these passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. They desire to not only go there as missionaries and to, to share the gospel with people so that people might be saved, they desire to raise up uh, natives who can identify with the culture and who have a connection with the people of that continent so that the gospel message might multiply instead of just being added to. And so uh, we're talking today again <clears throat> about the kinds of qualities that must be present in those who want to serve as elders or deacons, the two biblical roles of leadership in the church. <clears throat> so we should consider the kinds of, of reputations that the candidates have both inside and outside of the church. What kind of a character is on display in the lives of these individuals who come forward and say they want to serve as elders <clears throat> and as deacons? Is this man's character, this candidate for leadership, is this man's character and faith obvious to others. <clears throat> in my first uh, ministry position, I was a youth pastor to a number of, of largely unchurched kids. We were talking one Wednesday night about how important it is to consider your language, to consider the way that you behave around others. And we were particularly, I believe, in the book of James, talking about the power of the tongue and the things that we say and the way that our words can affect others' impression of who we are. And I had one... Uh, charismatic young guy. Man, he just had a big personality. And he, uh, he spoke up and kind of challenged what I said. He says, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but my mama always told me that I shouldn't worry at all about what other people think about me, that I should just be who I am and let other people sort out who they are. And so I, I stopped and I, I, I addressed that. We talked about it. Um, that sounds like good advice to many, isn't it? You, you've heard it before. Just be yourself to your own self be true. I think as a, as a people, our culture 
puts a lot of emphasis on personal freedom, the freedom to be who you are, to think the way that you want to think. We're often pressured to live up to the expectations of others, and that can be discouraging to us, especially if they want us to be something that we naturally aren't. This kid's mom, no doubt, wanted to preserve him from the peer pressure and manipulation that's so common in public school system today. And there may have actually been some biblical support, a little bit of biblical support, for the wisdom that his mom gave to him. So as we live out our faith, Christians should aim to please God, not to please man. We shouldn't be too worried about the ways that people think about us, about our character. Speaking in the, of the focus of his own ministry, the Apostle Paul um, asks the Galatian Christians in Galatia, in chapter 1, verse 10 of that small letter, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He asks, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the Apostle Paul, this, this great church planter, this great missionary, is focused on pleasing the Lord. He doesn't want to get caught up in trying to be everybody's best friend and making sure that he never offends anyone. He cares most about what the Lord God <clears throat> thinks about him. So this passage that we just read in Galatians 1 is a bit of a confession for him. Paul confesses that before Christ redeemed him, he was living as a Pharisee. He was one of these religious elite that cared greatly about what his countrymen thought about him. He was so wrapped up in trying to prove to everyone that he was holy and righteous and that he was better than the average man that he was constantly legalistically following all these rules, many of which were added to God's word and were never demanded of God to his people. And so he explains that if he were still trying to please men, he would not be a servant of Christ. Something has changed in him. He's no longer determined to impress the people around him. Rather, his focus and aim now is to be acceptable to the Lord God who has redeemed him and made him his own. <clears throat> now God, that it has, the God who saved him has given him a new priority. He brings this up again uh, to the church in Thessalonica, who he also cared for. In the first Thessalonian letter, chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Christ's opinion of us is what really matters. Friends, if we obediently follow Christ in faith, then we have no reason to think lowly of ourselves, even if every other man in the world were to think us fools. If we are being obedient to the Lord God, then we are doing what is right. We don't need public consensus if we're being obedient to the God who never lies to us, who always tells us the truth. But there is another side to this coin. We should have some concern for the perceptions of others. And I'm going to give you two reasons why. First of all, as followers of Jesus Christ, we can never lose track of the fact that we represent our Lord. We are ambassadors to him. As, as we live our faith out here on earth, we are representatives of the kingdom that he reigns over. <clears throat> when you identify yourself as a Christian, you are literally calling yourself after the name of Christ. You are bearing his banner. So what others think about you doesn't just reflect on who you are as a person. As an ambassador, you are representing something greater and holier and more pure than yourself. You are impacting the way that others think about Jesus. 
We live in a time when, when fame and popularity is big business in America. If your line of work gains you a celebrity presence in the media, whether you're an actor or an athlete or, or a famous entrepreneur, then there's a chance that some company is going to want to pay you money to endorse their product. They want to put your face next to their name brand so that people will associate the success that you have built up in your own life with their brand and think highly of that product so they'll want to buy it, so they'll want to purchase it and, and put their money towards it. Cam Newton, many of you know this man. He's a quarterback in the NFL, played for the Carolina Panthers football team. He has enjoyed a nice financial gain from several different people who have called him to endorse their products, one of which was, until October of last year, Dan and Yogurt. Uh, until Cam made some sexist post-game comments in a press conference, he was the face of Dan and Yogurt. Uh, in a conference after a game, a, a female reporter asked Cam a technical question about the ways that the defenders were trying to defend the receivers that he was throwing the ball to. And when she asked this question, Cam chuckled a little bit, and then he replied, it's funny to hear a female talk about routes, which was very offensive to this woman who makes a living talking about, writing about, reporting on football. Uh, when Dan and Yogurt heard that Cam had made such disparaging remarks to a woman who was just trying to do her job, they decided that the celebrity appeal of Cam Newton was not enough to overcome the negative impression that he was giving of values that Dannon represents. A lot of people who buy Dan and Yogurt happen to also be females. And so Dan and Yogurt decided to cut their ties with this individual, and he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars because of the words that he said. They no longer wanted this kind of a man representing them. When you bear the name of Jesus, others get much of their impression of who Jesus is and what he stands for from watching you follow him. Now, it should never just come from you. I'm not saying that your example is enough for others to truly know Christ. Anyone who wants to know Christ must go beyond just seeing good Christians live out their lives and saying, I want to be like them. It must, it must go to the revealed word. They must seek Jesus personally. But you have the power to make an impression on people about who Jesus Christ is and what he stands for. And you might be the only first representation of what they get of the gospel and Jesus Christ. We don't want them to attribute our foolishness, our cruelness, our hypocrisy, our carelessness. We don't want them to attribute that to our holy and perfect God. So to show these individuals the best picture of Christ that we can show them, we need to make a strong effort to make sure that when they see us, the things that we say, the ways that we live, the things that we do, that they're seeing beyond us and they're seeing Christ in us that they're seeing the impact of the gospel upon our hearts lived out in faithful obedience because Christ is what matters most. A second reason why we should give some attention to the way that people think about us is that we can't afford to ignore the opinions of others since we desire their salvation. We want them to become what Christ has made us. We want those people in the world who do not really know us yet, who, who only have an impression of us, we want them to experience the love and the hope and the regeneration that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. When we treat someone as though we care zero about their opinion, 
What is that going to do with their willingness to receive the true things that we have to share with them? When we don't care about another person's view of us at all, we're sending a very strong message that they mean nothing to us, that they are invaluable, and that we don't love them. And that's not what God desires his church to do. They will know that we are Christians. How? By our love. Showing care and concern opens doors to connect with people and to influence them towards that gospel that alone can change them. And so passages like the ones that we read earlier in Galatians and in 1 Thessalonians must be taken alongside Paul's other words. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33, he expands on our understanding of how we should see others' view of us. He says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You understand what Paul is saying here? He's not saying that everybody's opinion drives everything that he does, but what he's saying is, in as far as he can accommodate others, and as far as he can put himself second and put other people first, he's glad to put effort and energy into making a good impression on people. He wants to please them. He wants to be loving to them. He wants to be truthful to them. He wants to give them a right picture of Christ by the way that he lives his life out in front of their gaze. Utter disregard for the way that you're perceived by others is not only foolish, it is unloving. It is selfish. And it can act as a grave hindrance to the spread of the gospel. Do you remember what Peter taught us last week? Last week we looked in 1 Peter 5, first five verses of that book, and uh, that chapter rather. And you might remember in in verse 3 that Peter told those who want to be leaders that they are to practice their leadership, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Our behavior should should be lived out in such a way that others can see what we're doing and see the pattern of Christ that we're following so that they too might want to follow the pattern of Jesus Christ. Christians represent the truths that the Son of God revealed to us and lived for. So this man who desires to serve as an elder or a deacon should have an exemplary character and faith that is obvious to other people. It's not enough for them to just love the Lord God personally and to keep that light under a bushel, their faith must be lived out in such a way that other people could affirm, could testify to their faithfulness to God's law and to his commands and to his love. And so we have three passages of scripture. If you have that form that I gave you a few weeks back, that might be helpful in keeping track of how we've split all these characteristics out and we're looking at them a group at a time. But in 1 Timothy 3, 2, The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, an overseer, remember that word overseer is the same as elder, is the same as pastor. An overseer must be above reproach. A little bit later in that same chapter, he says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, the the Apostle Paul writes, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, upright and holy. So these are all terms that we need to understand and realize that they, they, they're painting a picture of this godly leader that we want to see 
faithfully serving God and his church. Let's, let's start by looking at this phrase, above reproach. This man should be above reproach. And, and what does that mean exactly? In order to understand above reproach, you need to know what reproach means. A person who is reproachable is a person who is vulnerable to expressions of disapproval and disappointment. When somebody brings reproach upon you, that means they have identified something in you that needs to be corrected, and they are calling you out for that thing. That reproach could be done in love. Sometimes it's done in spite. Sometimes it's done to conquer. But reproach means that someone disapproves of your actions. They are disappointed in the way that you are living your life. So to be above reproach means to take the moral high road and to do it on such a consistent basis that your enemies have nothing to accuse you of. The word blameless is then a dynamic equivalent of that phrase above reproach. When you are blameless, no one can blame you for the bad things that people are often blamed for. I want you for a second to turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 6. The Word has given us an amazing example of someone who lived out blamelessness to a really high degree. And so we're going to look at this man, Daniel. Daniel is a prophet who lived as an exile from Jerusalem. He originally was born and raised in David's holy city. But because of Israel's disobedience to God, the Lord allowed foreigners to come in, to come in and to conquer not only Jerusalem, but all of Israel and to put it under subjugation. So the Babylonian Empire ruled for a time, and then later another secular uh, nation, the Persian and Medo Empire, came and conquered the Babylonians. Through this time, uh, this young man Daniel was exiled out of Jerusalem, was raised up in a foreign culture, but he stayed true to the things that he believed about Yahweh, the God of Israel. He stayed true to the commands of Scripture. He had to do the difficult work of learning how to follow God while at the same time not conflicting too much with the culture that he had been placed in, the secular people that he lived among. He wanted to be able to have an impact on them. So he was respectable. The things that he said he was careful about. He took the moral high road. He did such a good job of being faithful to the Lord God that God blessed him. Blessed him to the, to the point where he was risen up as a, a strong leader among the Babylonians. Though he was not a native Babylonian, though he was an Israelite by birth, his great wisdom and the power that God had given to him and the insight that God had given to him caused him to rise in the ranks until he was a very, very high advisor to the leadership of that empire. Then when the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered Babylon, the Persians identified the great gifts that God had put into the, the heart of this man, Daniel, and he again began to ascend the ranks until he was one of the very high-ranking wise men amongst the Persians. Now, that didn't really sit well with many of the other Persians who were trying to do the same job that Daniel was doing. They didn't like that this foreigner, this man who should be like a slave to them, that this foreigner was seeing so much favor from the king. And so some of them conspired together to try to paint Daniel in a wicked light so that he might fall into uh, condemnation and lose his position as wise men in Persia. And so in Daniel chapter 6, starting with verse 4, it says, Then the high officials of the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. 
and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Daniel had conducted himself in such a holy and set-apart way during his stay in Persia that though he was a somewhat public figure, though he was well-known and people had examined his life, there was no dirt to dig up on Daniel. There was no incriminating photographs. There was no mistreatment of others. There was no secret testimonies of moral compromises. Daniel was a man of God to such a degree that his opponents even came to the logical conclusion that the only way that they were going to be able to slander Daniel was to find some way to pit his allegiance to God against his allegiance to Persia. They knew that they needed to find something that would make it clear that Daniel loved Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob and Abraham, more than he loved the king and the empire. That's exactly what they did. They convinced the king to sign a law forbidding anyone to pray or to appeal to any god or any man besides the, the, the emperor for a certain amount of days, for 30 days. If that individual broke that rule, they would be fed to the lions as a public display of insubordination. <clears throat> Daniel heard of this law. He knew the consequences, and yet he refused to compromise. This was one of those instances where his allegiance to God put him at odds to his allegiance to worldly powers, and he chose the right path. He chose instead to be faithful to God rather than being faithful to people. Now, I'm, you might be tempted to ignore me for the rest of the sermon and to just be in Daniel reading the rest of his story. Please don't do that. I would appreciate it more if you would take that, the time this week during your personal devotions to read the rest of that story and to see how Daniel bravely faced the lion's den because he desired to be faithful to the Lord God. He was willing to take that punishment if it meant that he would stand for what was true. But the reason I share his story with you today is to share with you how difficult it was for these co-workers of Daniel's to find any kind of fault in him. He was living his life not carelessly, but intentionally, purposefully to honor the God that had put him in such a wonderful position. Later on in Scripture, in 1 Peter, <clears throat> the Apostle Simon urges men and women of faith to behave in essentially the same holy and upright way that Daniel did in Persia. The churches in Asia Minor were beginning to experience the beginnings of persecution. They were beginning to see pressure, not just from within the church, from those who were Judaizers, but from without the church as well. Those who outside, were outside of the church were beginning to say slanderous and inaccurate things about the Christians. They were intimidated by them. They, they were threatened by them. And so the, the, the Christians began to experience the beginnings of physical persecution in Asia Minor. And so to prepare them for this, to prepare them for the, the heat that was to come, Peter writes to them in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 12, and says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see how parallel that is to the life and action of Daniel? 
these believers were encouraged, saying, Stand true to the good and moral commands of your God. And if you do this, when the community, when the secular people around you try to slander you, they will see by your actions that they have nothing to accuse you of. And though they might be bitter against you in that moment, that when Christ comes again and we all go before the throne of judgment, that those individuals who would have condemned you will only have good things to say about your character. They will have no choice but to testify that you are a man who was above reproach, that you are a woman who cared about what was true and did what was right. We want men like that leading our churches. We want individuals who will stand for the truth and who display such character that there is no question that they are standing for the Lord God. And does that mean that the leader we're trying to define here is a perfect man? I hope not, because if it does, then the church will be without elders until Christ's return. There is only one perfect man, and that is Jesus Christ. Thankfully, the scripture reminds us that though we are called to perfection, God knows that we are not perfect. And he wants us to understand that though we strive for perfection, we will stumble and we will fall. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Friend, if you are a perfectionist who's been trying to to follow every rule, to dot every I and cross every T, and if that has not led to joy as you've grown nearer to the Lord God, but instead it has led to self-condemnation, if you feel like a failure constantly, if you're always questioning your actions and, and wondering if God could ever love such a failure like you, then you need to read 1 John and understand that those words can set you free. When the apostle tells us that we are not perfect people, he is reminding us that we are to live not in a state of constant perfection, but in a state of constant grace where our God overcomes our failures and helps us to know that though we do not add up the way we want to, though we cannot display his perfection perfectly, that he will love us nevertheless, that he will care for us through that, that he will forgive us when we fall, and so that he can, even though we are imperfect vessels, he can display a reflection of his perfection in us. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Any, any attempts we make at perfection will only go so far as Christ carries us. He is the one that makes it possible for us to be pleasing to the Father. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, our sins have been washed clean. He is in the process now of refining our behaviors, of refining our language, of refining our thinking, so that the longer we walk with him, the more we will naturally want to be like Christ the more we will act as Christ acted. But friends, do not beat yourself up at the end of each day simply because you can look back at that day and see things that you did wrong. All of us will have done things wrong throughout the course of the day. That's one of the reasons I'm really grateful for communion, which we'll be experiencing in just a few moments. Communion should not be the trial, the test that determines whether you are good enough to be loved by God that week. That is absolutely not what communion is. Communion is the regular reminder that God has made a place at his table for us through the work of Jesus Christ. That no matter how far short we fall of perfection, 
He is not giving up on his redeemed. He is drawing us near to him, and through Jesus Christ, we can have victory over the things that used to have victory over us. In this context, blameless doesn't mean the deacon or elder is required to be a flawless human being, but rather it means that he is required to be dignified. He is required to be upright. When a mistake is made, repentance comes quickly. And the reasons that he has given in the past to trust his character afford him grace from those whom he has offended. The idea of dignity has gone down in in public stock these last couple of generations. Think about our society. People don't really admire dignity anymore. To be dignified is often seen as being old-fashioned. Someone who's dignified is irrelevant or prudish or unnecessarily serious. If the average person believes that there is no absolute truth in our society, and sadly I would say that that's the truth, that most people believe that way. If most people in our society believe that everything is relevant and that that truth only matters so much as it is useful to you, which sadly most people believe that is true, then it is, is no surprise then that dignity has dropped in importance to the members of our society. A person no longer has to be dignified to prove um, that they are following what is right. Instead, they, they prefer to be funny or trendy. They f- prefer to be pragmatic and, and practical. But a Christian is held to a holy standard, a sacred standard, an unbending truth that doesn't need to conform to the trends of the day. The godly leader should be someone with enough character, with enough reverence to God, that they live out their faith in a dignified manner. It is not cheap to them. That means that they don't talk about their faith as some flippant thing. It's not a source of hollow jokes. They don't take the Lord's name in vain or or tease people about their faith. It is not easily cast aside or amended if the society that they live in begins to go in a different direction. If, If it becomes more practical to be quiet about their faith, they don't stop talking about Jesus because they have dignity. They know that the reason... They are here on this earth is to represent their God and they're going to continue in that path even if others would mock them for that. A man who knows what he believes and doesn't pander to the opinions of others, no matter how popular those opinions may be, is a man of dignity. The word upright in Titus 1.8 speaks to the visible nature of man's character. A man who is upright walks in the ways of the Lord and he is not ashamed of it. It should remind us of the words of the Apostle Paul, which he spoke in Romans 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The man who is upright does not slink about or attempt to marginalize his religion so as to be more acceptable to the world. Rather, he is not ashamed of the gospel. And since he speaks the truth in love, he has no reason to hang his head. He will, without shame, quiet his family in a restaurant to pray for the meal before the food comes. He's not worried that if everyone else is going to look at them sideways and think, wow, what's that guy doing? Instead, he is, he is proud to be a Christian. He is thankful for the work that Jesus Christ is doing in his life. And he boasts in the work that Christ has done. He is an upright man, not a man who hides and slinks away and pretends to be of little faith. What kind of behaviors, church, 
will put a man in danger of reproach? What kind of activities will cause them to start to slip back in their character and to, to make a, a, a less than powerful statement about the love of Christ that has saved them? There are, are several. I just want to mention a few to get you thinking about these things. First of all, an inappropriate attitude towards management of money. We, we talked a little bit about this last week, didn't we? About how he who is to be an elder in God's church should not do so for shameful gain, but instead should be eager to do the work of the Lord God. This week in the news, a 68-year-old televangelist, Jesse Duplantis, has recently come under fire for challenging his large listening audience to try and raise $54 million so that he might buy a new Falcon 7X luxury private jet. He believed the Lord wants it for him, and he's challenging his people to raise the money to buy it for him. He already owns a private jet, but he claims that it's wearing out. And he argues that the plane he has now makes it impossible for him to get all the way across the country without refueling. And he wants to save money for the ministry by getting a jet that can go all the way across the country without refueling. When you hear a man making claims like this and putting so much money towards personal luxury, you have to question whether their heart is truly for the gospel. You have to be discerning because it would appear to me that this man has an inappropriate attitude towards the management of money. He does not have on his mind and heart the reaching of the lost, though he claims that that is his true motivation, but rather he desires to be a jet setter, to be one who expresses powerful success in the way that he travels and in his uh, experience of luxury and in comfort. So inappropriate attitudes towards the management of money, those who get themselves deeply into debt, those who are unwise about the way they back financial ventures, those who uh, are not careful with the way they spend their money or are constantly trying to gain more money, even if it is through unscrupulous means. You've got to look out for that in those who would serve as, as deacons. Examine how they spend their funds because the way that we spend our funds is indicative of what we love in our heart. A second way that people often disqualify themselves from leadership in the church is through inappropriate behavior with the opposite gender, or in this day and age, through the same gender. Are they overly flirtatious with women? Do they guard their eyes? Do you constantly see them tracking the room as someone attractive walks in? Are they favoring beautiful people and ignoring those who are less than, than attractive or, or not as blessed in a, in a, in a visual way? These individuals uh, may have something wrong with their heart. They might not be focused on the Lord the way that they claim to be focused on the Lord. Some are expressing inconsistencies in their truthfulness. When a person does not speak the truth in all regards, then they are putting themselves in a position of vulnerability. A person who is not adamantly cling to the truth is setting themselves up for blame because eventually the truth rises to the surface. So those who lead as deacons, those who serve as elders, should be people who desire to do what is right and tell the truth even if it hurts them, even if it is difficult. And another thing to look for, one final suggestion, is their pattern of behavior the same when they are around the church as it is when they are out in the secular world? Does this individual who would desire to serve, do they show a consistency in their walk when they are away from the church? Or is their holiness primarily visible on Sunday mornings and maybe at midweek Bible study? 
but in their, their secular place of work or in, the, in, the, in their communities around their neighbors? Is their language using a whole other vocabulary? Are, are they often harsh and unloving? Do they seem to be more motivated by personal success when they're not in the church, but, but then come across as humble when they are in the church? These are things that we have to pay attention to, friends, because the person who leads in God's church must be a man who is blameless, above reproach, dignified, holy, and set apart, not the same as the people of the world that we live in. We're going to address more of those in two weeks um, as we, we look at things that might disqualify a man, uh, sinful behaviors that, if they are present, can keep a man from, from serving the, the, in the house of God. But before we close today, I want to take a look at some of the steps that a man might take to guard his standing among others. Since our reputation among those who are inside and outside of the church is not totally inconsequential, since it does have an impact on our testimony to the Lord God, what are some things that we can do to prevent ourselves from falling into error and from shaming Jesus Christ? First of all, ask yourself, does this man put himself in compromising situations with with women? Does this man meet privately with women? Does he tend to give a lot of attention to a few attractive people in in the congregation and then ignore other people? Uh, Does he often grandstand and try to draw attention to himself so that others will, will be drawn to his charisma? You must ask yourself, does he err on the side of gentleness and mercy? When it comes time to judge, does he do so with a soft hand or is he domineering as 1 Peter warned us against last week? Is he careful about the things that he says? Always speaking the truth, but avoiding words that might unnecessarily hurt or wound others. Especially, especially since so much is, is recorded and preserved today, the, the, the testimony of a man is going to eventually come out if they are saying one thing here and saying another thing over here. Eventually we will learn and hear about the, the discrepancies in their character. Is this individual diligent about his private life? Is his life away from the congregation a holy life? Does he seek the Lord on his own when no one is looking? Or is he content to simply pray loud when everyone's eyes and ears are on him? Is this a man who will not trade his dignity for a cheap laugh, especially at the expense of something holy? These things will hopefully give the people he intends to shepherd greater confidence to trust his counsel and to respect his judgment, to listen to his guidance as he leads them in the truth of God's word and to take his preaching to heart. A shepherd who is not above reproach will soon be a shepherd who is lacking sheep. Because of the outreaching nature of Christian missions, it's important that the ones who serve as leaders in the church must not only be of good reputation among believers, but they also must be considered considering their reputation among those who are not a part of God's people yet. 1 Timothy, 1, or 1 Timothy 3, verse 7 says, And he must have a good reputation with those who are outside of the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, I know this is really tricky, because those who are outside of the church often have a very different opinion of what earns someone a good reputation. There are plenty of people in our world who have a good secular reputation who we would not consider exemplary men. If you stay faithful to the gospel you will offend the world, and the world will accuse you of wrongdoing. Your context of what is right and what is wrong must always be what the Lord teaches and not what man feels. And so the next time that I preach, in two weeks after uh, Lois Osborne and her team comes, 
Uh, we're going to examine some of the ways that leaders in God's church can interact with those outside of the church in such a way that they might preserve a good reputation with them, that they might come across as loving and holy and good through hospitality, through gentleness, and, and through honesty. But we've got uh, some more to do this morning. We're going to, in the next few minutes, we're going to partake of the Lord's table. So I'd like us to, to bow um, for a moment in prayer. We're going to invite the band to come up, and then we're going to explain um, how we're going to walk forward in uh, observing the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the ways that you teach us, Lord. And we are humbled by these texts because they, uh, they, they point out things that are wrong in all of us, Lord. None of us meets these requirements perfectly, God. And so I pray that we would slow ourselves down as we read through these things and that we would not uh, give in to the temptation to think that these are requirements that God requires of others but not of ourselves, Lord. Let us apply them to us. Let us think of these standards as being holy standards that should guide every human being who loves the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, that we would be soft-hearted about these things, Father, that we would rightly balance the understanding that our true uh, identity and character does not come from the approval of others, Lord. It comes from you. But at the same time, we would not be flippant or uh, neglectful in the ways that we come across to the people in the world. Let us have a good reputation among those who are outside of the church, Father, so we might have a better chance of reaching them for your, your gospel. I pray, God, that as we come to the table, that you, would, that you would quiet our hearts, Lord, that you would help us to understand that serving you is, is a gift, that you give freely, that your son, Jesus Christ, was willing to bleed, to suffer, to die for us, that because of his victorious resurrection, we are no longer dead in our sin, but we are receiving the wonderful promises of salvation thanks to your son, Jesus Christ, if we trust in him. So I pray that this would be a time of encouragement. I pray that as we enjoy these elements, that your grace would abound here, Lord God. Let us be healed by these things. Let us, let us be refreshed by them. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.